pretty smart ladies. Because people have opinions. I did a weird thing, then you did a weird thing. Weird in a way that was not my weird. Well, if you have enough peanuts, it should just bring harmony, right? Everybody, get down. Get down on the ground. Get on your knees, because we need to be small. If we're supposed to exercise and eat healthy food and drink water, leave me alone. I'm not going to bed at the same time every night. Um, Everyone, Michelle used her mom voice on <laughs> it. I mean, and I, I don't want to compare my kid to dogs. It might be squirrel murderers, but we still like ice cream. <laughs> when will my friend die? When will my friend die? Hmm. This one's a challenge. My, both of my eyes are twitching. I'm not, I'm not ready for, I am, I am. But well, I'm not ready for anything. This doesn't have to be in the official readiness, but it is recording, so. Okay. I we, mean, if we, we are can, ready, we can just go. What does ready mean? What does, what does anything mean? What does anything mean? That should just, our episode should just be us just randomly saying like a word back and forth. Anything. Meaning. Lifeless. Oh, gosh. It's got dark so fast. Welcome. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Catherine. So welcome to Agreement. This is our podcast with Michelle and Catherine. And in this podcast, what do we do, Michelle? We bring you a weird thing, a pop culture thing, and a research thing. And then we try to make those things fit all together. Concretized as like a fortune cookie statement. To help you live your life or something. And in our 10th episode, we introduced the concept of the grab bag so that you could participate as well. But so far you've all been shy. So we're still waiting for some grab bag entries. Yes, feel free to send them to us. Like we said, you can record yourself and we will play your beautiful voice at angrymentpodcast at gmail.com. And we will read it off on the air. And then we're going to keep them secret even from ourselves until we bring them up so that it's a surprise and it can make it even more difficult for us to bring everything together in the end. So we're inviting you to make our lives more difficult. Please send us your grab bags. Okay. So this week, I'm going to go first. I wrote it down this time. I'm getting very official. So we have our weird thing. Weird thing. I love this. This is my love-hate category because we keep saying again and again, what is weird? And so this week, I built a snowman this morning. Oh, That's not my weird thing. I mean, it is kind of weird. It was really fun. It snowed a lot here in Colorado and woke up this morning and my husband said, let's build a snowman. And it was really, really fun. Can't remember the last time I made a snowman and it was just a fun thing to do in the afternoon, but it made me think about snowmen. Are snowmen weird inherently? I mean, I'm trying to think, are snowmen weird? I it's, it's, it's kind of weird how universal it is, right? That it's just like, oh, it's snowed. Now we all have to go make this particular kind of sculpture, right? Right. We all now have to go make kind of, right, representational figures of people. Let's go do it, come on. We'll stick things on its face. I used a carrot. I am shocked. If you will remember our very first episode, we talked a lot about how I love my squirrels. I feed them 
all I had was carrot to make this snowman. So he has a carrot nose, but he also has carrot eyes and a carrot smile. I am shocked. I'm assuming you like sliced them for the eyes. It's not just like daggers <laughs> of. <laughs> no, it's just, just, just uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, like 10 carrots on his face coming out. <laughs> <laughs> it's very heavy. It took a lot of support. Yeah, no, no. It's a, it's a long carrot for the nose and then coins. Sliced carrot coins for everything else. Yeah. Although, man, now I feel like I missed an opportunity <laughs> for a horrific kind of um, pinhead esque <laughs> snowman. <laughs> I might have to make another one tomorrow. Make a friend or is it is it a friend? enemy to haunt my snowman? <laughs> I'm shocked the squirrels have not attacked my snowman friend yet. And it's been a few hours, and they're fine. Anyway, so I was thinking about snowmen and how much fun they are. And I have a good long history of making snowmen with my brothers. We pride ourselves on our snowmen. One year, we took my youngest brother and we built a snowman around him. We were safety first, Michelle. We did put a straw in his mouth and we made sure the straw was sticking out of the snowman's head so he could breathe. <laughs> we thought it through. Thought it through. Not the hypothermia, but the but the oxygen. The oxygen. That was our birdie. And then we left him in there until my mom came home from work and said, come look at our snowman. And she said, oh, that's a nice snowman. And then he said, yes, I am. And she <laughs> shrieked and freaked out. And it was well worth it. And, then he, and that's pretty weird. But that's not my weird thing. My weird thing was just I wanted to think through the history. The earliest documentation of a snowman is Ooh. how we know we don't know how old snowmen are right so like this is kind of like what are we counting as a snow like are there parameters like does it just have to be a humanoid sculpture made out of snow or does it have to be like the three balls of snow with items in it, the face i'm glad you asked that michelle because actually i was researching this americans or at least the only nation that make the three ball snowman in England and a lot of other places across Europe. It is a torso, big long torso, and then a ball head. Okay, so like there's two, not three forms that make the snowman. So, yeah, we have the three balls, boop, boop, boop. But in the UK, it's more of a long mound and arms and then a head. The arms are also made of snow? Yeah, usually. Mm -hmm. Not twigs, which I always loved the um, silent cartoon, The Snowman. Have you ever seen that? We have not, but I, I have. Oh, it's I have to really add good. It's British, though, and I was like, all the snowmen look weird in this. But it's because they come to life, and I thought they had to look more like humans to come to life. But no, that is because UK snowmen are just built differently. So to answer your question, it doesn't have to be the three balls, but it does have to be something referred to as a man or a human made of snow. Can can I can I interject with an aside before before I answer this question? Of course. So um, when I was a kid, uh, and you'll remember that I was weird in my TV viewing because we only had <laughs> one of those gigantic satellite dishes and no actual, like we couldn't get network television. So I never knew what anybody else was talking about, but I had access to like 
seven different versions of HBO or whatever. Um, yeah. And so I, and I went to your house to watch TV because I was not allowed to watch TV in my house, which came up. My parents listened to the podcast from our last episode and my mother, I don't think she'll mind me saying, said, I heard you go on and on and on about TV. And at one point I said, is this my fault? Because I didn't let you watch TV <laughs> as a kid. Is this a response to that? There is a movie called Jack Frost in which a man, I think it's Michael Keaton, comes to life as a snowman because he, I think he's dead and this is how he gets back in touch with his kids. So that movie is rated like PG and there was a description of that movie on my TV and said that was what was coming on. And so we were watching that, but it was not that. So like, like you know, you're scrolling through, this is back before you could just control when, when something started. So you would just be catching something in the middle of it, right? So that's what it said it was. And I was like, fine, whatever. And, you know, I have my little siblings in the room with me and I'm like, oh, this sounds whatever. There's a snowman that came to life. He's going to reconnect with this kid. It's fine. Yeah. They had mixed up the descriptions for Jack Frost, the Michael Keaton um, reconnects with his kids as a snowman with the Jack Frost, the horror movie. Oh, no. <laughs> a snowman has come to life. And this scene that it came in on was like, he was hiding in a bathtub so that he could, this woman was getting naked to get in the shower and <gasps> stabbing her with his carrot. No, like, it was, uh, it was traumatic. <laughs> Oh, wow. That's not a good mix. <laughs> no, it was bad. All right. But your question is, when do I think that there was first a snowman? Doesn't have to be the American version. Right. Um, like, what's the oldest known, right? We don't know how long snowmen have existed. Um, like you said, it's weird that when it snows, we all run out and make a human figure. But um, what is the first known representation of a snowman so we can at least say we know snowman existed then i mean they're at I least this old think it would have to be like because we've always made sculptures so i would i wouldn't be surprised if we have like ancient records of this do we okay i'll put you out of your misery yes, please. i would agree that there probably are ancient snowmen but the at least as far as academic snowman research goes um it is 1380 okay okay and it is from a medieval book of hours that was found in the hague i encourage everyone to find that it's kind of horrific it's not a fun snowman it's at not, all it's not as horrific as having your entire face made out of pointy carrots or tuning into jack frost the horror movie <laughs> um but then i found a second image um, this is just on Wikipedia, and I encourage you to see it. From 1511, in another book of hours, and this is the British version with a head and a more oblong body, and it's everyone, it's kind of a woodcut block, um, and people are dancing around a snowman. And I love this image. It's so fun that, like, in 1511, people would gather around snowmen and dance. Um, but I learned that this image is actually a drawing of something called the Miracle of 1511, which is very weird. Here's my weird thing. I got this from Atlas Obscura and I'm gonna kind of just read from that. And so they say um, one particularly interesting moment in the canon of snow art was during the middle ages when things were made with snow to make a statement. 
In some places, there were traditions among artists to populate cities with snowmen after a heavy snowfall. In a time when famine, plague, sickness, and conflict were not uncommon, snow often brought winter festivals and other officially endorsed morale boosters, which provided some moments of relief and levity to people who might otherwise be surviving on grass or dropping dead. The thinking was that the public could blow off steam for a week or two with excessive drinking and joking and public art displays, but in a supervised way, right? This is very like um, theories of the carnivalesque. Yeah, where people yeah. have to let their inner whatever out. But only when know. we tell them, not just when all we the tell time. them. Exactly. So um, they would have these snow festivals because, you know, it's winter and that's rough and people are sad. And especially during times like in 1511, when the plague is happening in full throttle. So they had um, this snow festival in Brussels in 1511. And it was a very brutal winter. It was called the winter of death. Temperatures were excessively cold for an excessively long time. And there was a big bout of plague happening. Is Catherine drawing parallels? Mm. Maybe, maybe some subtle ones. So they declared a winter festival to distract everyone, right? People are starving. People are freezing to death. Um, there is a plague happening. And so they said, let's have a winter festival. Let's make some snowmen so you forget who's to blame for this and you can be happy. What actually happened was the problems were just too big and it turned into a like a class warfare, but through snowmen. So they got the artist out to like make the pretty snowmen. People of different economic positions built their own snowmen, started destroying those other state-sanctioned snowmen. And basically the miracle, I don't know why it's called the miracle of 1511, but they ultimately destroyed a lot of the snowmen and built their own snowmen, which most of them, there were hundreds and hundreds of snowmen, most of which were highly pornographic or scatological. Right now, especially as we record this podcast, um, especially considering what's happening with the electrical grid in Texas and how people are dying and there is a plague happening, a pandemic that um, I don't know what I'm at. I don't think I'm advocating for anything. I am drawing parallels and I did make a snowman today, like something inside of me. I haven't made a snowman in ages. You needed a festival. You had to let it out. Go out and make a snowman. You should go make a dirty snowman, everybody. That's that's my uh, that's my weird thing. My other thing, if you don't if you don't want to make a horrific all carrot pinhead snowman, um, I also learned in my research that in Japan, I was like, well, how many balls do their snowmen have? Fun fact, many more balls. They tend not to make snowmen, but they make something called yuki cones, which actually sounds beautiful, where they make lots of snowballs and stack them in a cone and put a, a candle inside. So it's like a big luminary made of snowballs. Aww. Doesn't that sound beautiful? Yeah. They also sometimes make yuki sagi, which are snow rabbits. That's snow cool. rabbits are more common than snowmen in Japan. And a lot of research for a weird thing. I'm now a little nervous about what your research thing is. Um, <laughs> it's a it's a cop out in a way. I I can't help it. I'm building my snowman. I'm like, 
what's the history of snowmen? Why, why am I doing this? Where is this compulsion coming from? And now you know it's the the people of 1511 speaking through you about their frustrations. You're in, yeah, it's cold. There's like, everyone's sick. Go out and roll some snow around. Don't let them don't let them distract you. You know what's wrong. I know. I feel like I played into it. Like now everything's great. Build the snowman. I'm happy. It did make it did make me happy. You know, well, that actually connects some to my weird thing is the happiness in places. Like, all right. So did you, Michelle, is your weird thing that you felt happiness? And yes. Just happiness so, rare? so strange. No, no. Um, all right. So so for some context for my weird thing, I I I don't buy a lot of things. Like I'm not like I'm not like a like a, I'm not into clothes. I'm not into jewelry. In fact, my husband and I we we laughed a lot because the only thing like when we we're both we're both pretty similar in this. We don't like a lot of objects. We're not we just don't buy a lot of things. Um, but we did we do spend a lot on entertainment. So like you know when we first got together, we would buy probably about a CD a week, and we would buy lots of DVDs. But then you don't have to buy those things anymore. So like the only thing that we regularly bought, like we don't have to buy anymore. And so like, I don't know, we just don't like, like things are not a huge part of, I don't, I hate shopping. It's just, I read a lot of like minimalist stuff and I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to say that I'm this, but I think it was more like reverse engineering. I'm like, I just don't, like, <laughs> I just I don't like the process of getting things. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, you, I think there was a point in our friendship where you just refused to ever go shopping with me again. Like that was a hard line we had to do. Yeah. Yeah. Remain friends because I love things and I love buying things and I love shopping and I will take you. If you go shopping with me, especially for clothes, you're in, you're in it for the whole day. And there was a point where you're like, no, we'll, we will never do this again together. We can't do these things. Yes. And I respect that hard. If I could literally just wear like a pair of black leggings and a gray t-shirt for the rest of my life, I would be fine with that. Like, I, like, I don't know. I just, I'm not a very, I'm not a good consumer, right? Like I just like, I, I typically don't get into like anything faddish and I just don't, but, but I am now on my computer. So this is where my weird thing is like, you know, all of the time and there's all of these targeted ads and I've realized that slowly I've been buying things from them and and I like when I when I made that realization I was like oh man they've got me I need to stop this but then I stopped and I'm like but I love them all like I've been really happy with all of the purchases <laughs> like so maybe like maybe they just have got me figured out I don't know so my weird thing is that like I don't typically like I really hate shopping. Like I really, really hate it. Yeah. And all of these things that I've bought, like I didn't really have to shop for them. They just popped up in here and I clicked them and I said, oh, oh yes, I would like that. And then it just came to my house. And I'm like, so maybe they, they figured me out, right? Like maybe they figured out how to like, yeah. I don't like, but like we have a nugget now, which is a very trendy a nugget. Yes. Do you, do you know about nuggets? You have I, I know about nuggets. I forget where I read about them. And then you told me you were on the wait list. And I was just really proud and happy for you. The nugget, for those of you who are not in the know, is this like, it's like a couch kind of, it folds. 
Um, but it, it's, it's in three pieces that folds into like two, the two big pieces fold in half so that you can stack them and it's like a square or you can lay them out and it's like a rectangle and then it has these triangular pillows. My kids mostly use them to launch each other into them as crash pads, which is <laughs> why I was like, yes, I need this in my life because right now they just launch each other into the wall and I'm not going to the emergency room during a pandemic. So I need something soft for them to land on. Um, we, we were able to unfold one and turn it into a giant slide on the stairs. Mm. And, um, we also have like one of those tumbling wedges so they can stack them together and they make like these giant towers that they climb and like, I don't know, like it's, it's a nice little thing. Um, but people are obsessed with this little play couch. And when I first saw it, I was like, why are people like, I mean, it was, it was like worse than trying to get Hamilton tickets. Like they would, they would announce that they were on sale and they would sell out within literally three minutes. And so, and I, I refused to do that. I was like, this is ridiculous. I'm not like, I would like one of those, but I am not going to do this. I'm not going to sit and click refresh and try to get to my computer just this right minute. Um, but back in like November, they announced that they were doing wait lists instead so that you didn't have to try to get in and get one that you could just say, hey, when you have a nugget, send me one. If that's five months from now, whatever. And so ours came in like late January and it's, it is as advertised. It is a delightful little port building crash pad thing. And I like, I'm like, it, it, it does what it says it's going to do. And the other <laughs> thing that I've, um, I got sucked into was the, the she fit, the, the, the sports bra that like, yes, the, I've seen these. Yeah. That has all the, like, you know, like you, it's completely adjustable and you like pull the, the belt on the back. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I just made a motion of pulling straps up, but the ad makes it look so they just pull the straps up again and again. It's satisfying and good to go. Um, and it is, I, I don't want to say life-changing because that is a bit too extreme, but I, Emma, as a woman who needs a good sports bra, I'll say, I, I've been like running in place on my trampoline and it was really hard for me to get like my heart rate up, right? Like I, I couldn't get the cardio minutes that I wanted. And I just assumed like, oh man, it's just hard to run on a trampoline. But everybody was like, man, the trampoline such a good workout. And I'm like, it's not like, I'm not getting there, right? So I got this She Fit bra and the very first time I, I put it on and I'm running and I'm like, oh man, like my heart rate is up. Like I'm, and I'm like, oh, cause I'm not in pain while I'm doing it. This is fantastic. Like it was just, it, that's impressive. Completely 100% works the way that it says it's going to work. And so I'm like, so maybe just, I, cause I was at first kind of embarrassed that I was getting sucked into these, like very obviously they're just throwing it in my face over and over again, obviously targeting me based on, you know, something I've probably said that my phone has overheard. Cause I'm sure it's right. To me, right. And so like, it, it feels kind of invasive, these advertisements, but I also like, I did need a better sports bra and my kids really do use the nugget. So my weird thing is just this feeling I have of like, kind of like, creeped out and also sort of exploited, but also convenienced and happy. <laughs> yeah. By my experience with these very targeted ads. Yeah. That's kind of, I don't want to say like the deal, but more and more that feels like what living in the world is. Every time I scream at my Alexa to turn the timer off and she doesn't hear me and I get upset, I'm like, but I'm screaming at an amazing robot in my house that sets timers for me and can understand my voice that I can get in fights with. That's 
good and bad. He's cool. Yeah, it's a mixed bag. Um, I'm obsessed. I mean, yeah, we talk so much about data and data analytics and gathering data and how that's oftentimes not used well, but I'm very glad it's brought you happiness, even if that comes with some lingering dread behind it. You know, I was going to have the lingering dread anyway. I might as well have a good sports bra to go with it. Yeah. Yeah. Get your heart rate up to match that anxiety, but productively on a trampoline. She, she has yeah well, um so I broke the algorithms for a while because I, I I do ghostwriting and I was writing for these like these like high-end like the most expensive rugs the most expensive lamps and <gasps> so I was on these insane I mean like websites where like literally the lamp shade cost fifteen thousand dollars right like just blowing my mind and, and I had to go to multiple ones of them and go to like the page where you were checking the price like it looked very much like I was somebody shopping for one of these lamps but I know that the the algorithms were like she buys everything at Target this is something is broken um so for a while I was getting ads as if I had a whole lot of money and um then at some point it figured it out and I started getting ads for like writers workshops and writers oh, retreats that's amazing they figured it out oh that's interesting that's interesting pop culture okay michelle michelle pop culture I was really appreciative last episode of when it was bothering me the label of stupid of shows for stupid people. I don't like the phrase stupid people. And you really I like talking through it with you because you're like, oh, well, that's it's not for stupid people. It's for no one. Those are shows for no one. Anyway, so this is something that has been bothering me after I finished it. I kind of just want to talk it out with you. See what, get your thoughts. Um, there is on Netflix a true crime documentary that's new to Netflix called Crime Scene, The Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel. I saw a preview for it, but I didn't, I haven't, I don't know. Much don't about. watch it. Okay. It's not an endorsement of that. I, it's, it's, um, it's very, very it's poorly done it's way too long and at at best it's not worth your time at worst I genuinely think it is it's very exploitative and it's dangerous I think I don't use that lightly but I think in many ways it's it's dangerous it is a problem and that's kind of what I want to talk about it made me think through something that's been on my mind a lot about a huge thing in pop culture. So it's a true crime documentary. And for those of you who don't know, if you do want to watch it, I don't recommend it at all, but I'm going to spoil the whole thing. And even that feels gross to say I'm spoiling a death that happened in real life. It's about a um, young 21-year-old Canadian woman named Alyssa Lamb who went to L.A., stayed at this hotel and um, part of the documentary is about the Cecil Hotel, which in and of itself is a fascinating building. Its history of where it is in LA is very fascinating. Um, it's right on the 
outskirts of Skid Row, Skid Row itself and why it exists and what's happening there as they slowly gentrify that part of downtown LA and erase Skid Row um, and make it smaller and smaller. We're kind of forced into this one area because the only homeless shelters, the only sources for help were there. And so they kind of just corralled them. If you don't know the history of it, I encourage you to look into it. And the Cecil Hotel is a hotel that's had a history within this gentrification of LA because it is zoned that it some of it has to be low-income housing. Some of it has to be long-term hotel rentals for, um, for low-income people. And it keeps getting bought up by hoteliers and hotel corporations who don't realize that and try to turn it into a luxury hotel. And it's very interesting architecturally how they try to split it up and how do they try to deal with that. And that would have been an interesting documentary. I would have loved to see that. They had an academic um, from, I think, New Orleans, from a school in New Orleans, talking about that history, the history of Skid Row. And then people who gave grisly murder tours in LA, and it was very exploitative. It's the story of this young woman who went to LA, stayed at this hotel, and Basically, the long and short of it is that she was bipolar and she went off her medication. She had a mental health episode, a very serious one, where she um, basically was having psychotic episodes, seeing things. She climbed up to the roof of the hotel and in some way or another got trapped in the water tower of the hotel and drowned. It's very tragic. It is a tragic story. I'm not saying it's a story that's not worth telling, but at the same time, I don't know why this is being made into this documentary. And the way they made it was really gross to me. The thing about this story that you might remember is it was in 2013 and the police decided they couldn't find her. They couldn't find her body when she went missing. And so they decided to release the last known video footage of her, which was in an elevator in the hotel. And the video footage was really creepy. And it was, I remember in 2013, seeing it and watching it and being like, it's very eerie um, because you know that this person is dead when you watch it, but also she was having a bipolar episode and she's, acting, you know, kind of strange. And it's actually very sad. And I think it's exploitative to play it again and again and again. Where this documentary goes is they don't focus on um, why this person didn't get the resources she needs, why she left alone in this hotel in LA. What it does is because she had a Tumblr post and a live journal, she lived online a lot. And then this video was very creepy. It got picked up by very early days internet conspiracy theories, theorists in 2013. And that's the story this tells. This focuses on people it calls internet sleuths, like they're heroes. And these internet sleuths the whole time are saying, we really cared about her. We want to know what happened to her. And everything is a conspiracy. It's a very straightforward story, but the documentary doesn't tell it that way. They leave everything out until the last episode and they try to make it seem like something happened to her, that someone murdered her. 
And these internet sleuths that they talk to and kind of heroicize keep saying, well, this doesn't add up. This doesn't add up. It's it's what we all know now about the internet and how much it can do these conspiracy theories. And at the end, when it becomes painfully obvious that she was not murdered, we see so many people who are genuinely let down, who said, we all were hoping for this. And it's just, I don't know what to do now. And now we're disappointed by- Yeah. They were disappointed that she wasn't murdered. It was so laid out on the table, these people who refused to believe the facts in front of them, who made crazy conspiracy theories out of nothing, nothing at all. But that made me stop and think about the larger industry now of true crime. Mm -hmm. It's so enmeshed in everything in popular culture. And it has been for a while. It's really reached an apex. And I am very, you know, last week I talked about how much I loved whodunit, which is very much about like solving murders. And I have, um, I like, there's a podcast called Criminal, which is done by the North Carolina Public Radio with Phoebe Judge and Lauren Spur. That is a great podcast. It's a true kind podcast. I consume these things that made really, really question the whole industry and genre of this because this was so so deeply exploitative so deeply gross and so i'm trying to work this out about how how are there these differences with things um murder mysteries or the movie clue where that seems almost more like a literary genre right well I mean, and that feels different than true crime in some ways yeah but those are also fictional counts yeah you know there's not an actual death you know like we didn't lose a human being to create those versions right yeah we were disappointed they wanted her to have been murdered why why did they need that in their lives they didn't even know her because they had Um, into one of those like fictional murder like you know like it it was a fun game to yeah yeah for them and they wanted to put the clues together so then it's almost like a chicken or an egg question right is the problem that we get entertainment out of like fictionalizing murder and turning murder into this kind of kind of gamifying murder right or is the problem that we can't tell when it's not fictionalized in there like oh that's a human being like you you were treating her as if she were some character because my gut instinct is like I I don't know but I'm, I'm also like pretty deep into the gallows humor and I feel like the the way that we deal with the darker sides of humanity is often through fictional representation of of the yeah. stuff that's hard so like I don't know like a, a movie like Clue or even even movies that are much darker and more realistic that deal with murder um, maybe not Jack Frost. Can't remember. That one. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> that's not dealing with like the realistic darker sides when you're getting stabbed with a carrot. <laughs> so you think till you go to sleep tonight with your oh carrot. no! <laughs> Don't make me go smash my snowman tonight. Meet me in St. Louis style before I go to sleep. <laughs> Oh, I love that movie. I love that scene when she smashes all her snowmen because she's sad. I haven't seen it. <gasps> you live in St. Louis. I haven't seen Meet Me in St. Louis. You gotta. So all that to say that I feel like 
fictional representations of murder, even if they are not weighty, right? Like even if they're like, if we're not giving them the reverence they deserve, right? I feel like that can be, it, it can be an important way for us to work through kind of the collective trauma of existing in a world where murder exists and where that threat exists yeah. and where like, you know, you have to deal with the dark side of humanity and that people can do such terrible things to one another. Like, I feel like there's something protective and um, important about that, right? Like, it, it yeah. does. And I mean, it also, like, it, that certainly is not a new phenomenon, right? Like, we Oh, can- no. I mean, it's, there's the carnivalesque, let off steam and there's a little light bulb. It's also very, like, psychoanalytic where children will play out um, various versions of death, right? Yeah. Where they'll talk, they'll they'll say like, tell me about when you're going to die, mom and dad. Or I don't know, every time I babysat, no matter who the kid was, if I babysat them long enough, they would say, okay, pretend I'm dead and you're sad, right? It's it's playing that out. Maybe we're all doing that now. Um, Because I think, right, there there are redemptive ones where I think definitely about like Errol Morris and how he, what he, why he does true crime, which seems that he genuinely is looking for justice, right? He has, his documentaries have really made impacts in the world. Like the, what's the, what's the woman who helped find the Patton Oswalt's wife? Um, yeah. I forget her name, but she did help, right? Michelle something. Michelle, I, I can't remember it now. Yeah. Uh, but Patton yeah. Oswalt's wife who, yeah. who died, right? She's and then he, then he like, helped finish the because I mean her book was mostly finished so he helped finish the publication but yeah I mean like um and I mean I think to some extent like true and true crime also it's hard for me because we do know that the world is full of flawed and sometimes corrupt and sometimes just incompetent people who have not given due diligence to investigate prior crimes and so, I mean, like, I'm thinking, like, as you were talking about this, I was thinking about Tiger King and how it fits into this genre in a way that, because look, I'm not up on my high horse. I watched it. I laughed. I shared the memes. Like, you know, like I, I, it was, it was, I was part of that moment in the cultural zeitgeist. Um, but I also did feel a little weird about it later. I was like, I don't know. Like, cause there- that's interesting because when I was watching this, my husband and I were talking about what's exploitative and what's not. We came down and said, Errol Morris is not exploitative, but Tiger King came up Yeah, where we said, how is that different from this? And then we said, is it, is it, can we say it's about the intent of who's making it? And that Tiger King definitely felt heads and tails, less, less, less exploitative than this in Which, every way. I mean, it's saying something because I I'd certainly think that, there's an exploitative nature to Tiger King, right? Like they certainly were not, they weren't giving these people a platform to tell their story. They were giving these people a platform so that we could laugh at them, right? Like, yes, I am saying that not to, um, not to um, come to the rescue of Tiger King, but to just so thoroughly condemn this Netflix documentary about the Cecil hotel. It's that, it's that bad. It, it makes Tiger King look like Errol Morris. And it, and it sounds like, it, I mean, again, I haven't seen this one, but I mean, it sounds like they irresponsibly kind of drug out 
the conclusion to lend credence to conspiracy theories that were already, you know, not. Yeah. It could the direct the director is actually a very well-known true crime director. His name is Berlinger. And he said he tried to spin it to say he's being self-reflexive. He said, quote, I thought it was appropriate and interesting to choose a crime that actually isn't a crime with a perception that something nefarious happened, but in fact, it wasn't a crime at all. Hmm. No, no, because that plays into the conspiracy theories, which have become such a damning problem for us today in so many aspects. And it just doesn't condemn these internet sleuths as it calls them. So yeah, I think I agree with you that it doesn't, we don't have to say all of it's bad, but I think it is getting to a point where it's gonna, for the sake of like tantalizing, this was a problem that they left those cliffhangers that didn't need to be there. It can give, it can give victims. We said it can help solve crimes. It can give victims a voice. I keep thinking about like surviving R. Kelly. Yeah. It's a very good platform for that. Um, there are times where it helps bring justice out. So I'm going to just end with, I do, there are true crime podcasts that or pop culture things I do enjoy. Um, West Cork is on Audible. That's great. That's a really good story. One of the differences is that the, the victim's family is very involved in that. And they kind of got the ball rolling. I think that makes a difference yeah. from the, the vic, um, not victim, right? This is an accident, but the person who died in the Cecil hotel documentary, their family is not involved in this at all. And I think that's a sign. I think if the family wants to be involved, we come back to this again and again, about who gets to tell the story and when and why this was not told by her family or anyone who knew her. No one who knew her was in this. West Cork is done by the victim and that her son and her family very much are a part of that to get the legal system rolling. The And then I already mentioned um, a podcast called Criminal, which is the North Carolina public radio is very, very good. But, oh, and just other ways. Um, I want to, there's a book called um, After the Eclipse by Sarah Perry, who is a friend of mine in grad school where her mother was murdered. And um, she does a really good job with that, of telling that story, but also using it to tell this. It, it, it works in really, really, really productive ways about how do you, as the family member of someone who was murdered, work through those intricacies of how it's perceived in the public eye. So I wanna plug that book called after the eclipse it's good i'll end with that that went on for a while but thank you for helping me think through that michelle because yeah i feel like it's just so gross it made me really be i feel like there are a lot i feel like there's not just one line either like there are multiple lines and they're going to kind of intersect at places and it's going to it's going to be a uh patchwork quilt of what is okay and what is not right there's not like a clear linear thing oh yeah this isn't going to be like yeah an easy equation and yeah but i i but i know what's not okay this This help me know it's not okay and the cecil hotel documentary on netflix is not okay
good to know at all. Don't watch it. I just, um, I just, yeah, it just made me so sad and depressed about humanity. The only reason to watch it would be to better understand how we, how we got like QAnon because it's so clear and easy to see if people can put these non things together. That's what this is truly about, but meh, meh, just go listen to that radio lab episode we mentioned a while ago instead. All right. My pop culture thing is, um, it's pretty short, I think, unless I just ramble about it a lot. Let me see. To start with, do you watch Atlanta? No, I haven't seen it. I need to. We have it downloaded and I've been wanting to watch it. Okay. So um, I love Atlanta. Like, love. I think this is the push I need. I think it is one of the smartest shows. It's just, it's so weird though. Um, Season one is not as weird. You can tell that um, Donald Glover had some more confines of like what they were like no we gotta you gotta tone down the weird keep it but then he was successful enough that um I just I think I'm caught up so I think I watched your season three and um it gets so it's it's so 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 postmodern right he's doing all these like really strange postmodern things but anyway so first of all I really like Atlanta um, there's one particular episode of Atlanta. I won't, I won't say which one it is. It is in the latest season that like, I just, cause I mean, it's, it's a pretty surreal, quirky, weird, usually funny, but also like, you know, darkly funny show. But there's one episode where I was just like sobbing at like, just like really deeply impacted me. Um, and that's the newest season. Yeah. Okay. So it, it's a, it's, it's, a, I, I love watching that show and I, I love kind of seeing um, Donald Glover's mind at work. I think he's he's a very smart and interesting artist. Um, so he just inked a deal with Amazon to get it. Actually, I'm going to pull up the article so I make sure that I'm explaining it because there's there's multiple pieces to it. He Atlanta will still continue to be on FX. It is has been renewed for a I think a fourth and fifth season. So I think there are going to be two more seasons of it. Um, but he is has done a deal with Amazon that is reportedly worth eight figures. And um, he is going to be producing two series for Amazon, one called Mr. and Mrs. Smith, and he, which he's going to star in alongside the Fleabag creator, um, Phoebe Waller-Bridge. And then another rumored project is Hive, which is centered on a Beyonce-like figure, according to this article. So um, yeah, uh, I guess it's set for a third and fourth season. So maybe I've seen season two of Atlanta. So maybe there's either way. But the interesting thing here is that it's Amazon is going to create a quote content channel of sorts that will spotlight Glover's work and other curated content on Amazon's prime video hub. And so it's this idea that you're like getting these curated channels from the minds of particular artists um, and the article that I was reading was talking about, this is on The Verge, which I can put, I can send to you to put in the Yeah, show. send it. We'll put in the show notes. It, it was, it was, ta- it's talking about how like people are feeling algorithm fatigue and that there's just too much content to try to, to sift through. And um, so they're like, you can get these kind of curated content from particular creators, right? So they're, 
obviously they're going to showcase their own work. So that work that like they've created or work that they've been inspired by or work that they just find interesting. And so, um, which I assume is all has to be already in the Amazon owned. Right. Right. Stable. So okay. HBO Max has a, a place where um, subscribers can click on the actor or director's playlist to see what they've been watching, which also made me think about like uh, Barack Obama always puts out like his playlist of like his music or the books that he's been reading and like people get really into that. And I just, um, I find that just an interesting concept of like, it's, I mean, I guess it's kind of like the influencer thing, but yeah handed over to specific celebrities to be like, here, you get to be, and I could just see an extension of that where someday somebody's job is to be like the curator of content, like in a way that is codified because you get to kind of pick your guide through the mess of pop culture available to you. And you could kind of choose instead of choosing like a channel, like instead of choosing Amazon streaming, maybe you choose to follow so-and-so who takes you through their walk of the, like, yeah, seems like a really interesting step in. Yeah. I'm just saying, yeah, again, it feels like something that's very new, but it also somehow feels kind of old. Yeah. It feels like it has roots in something older that you would maybe but I don't know what it is. I don't know what the older corollary is that it's reminding me of. Does that I mean, make sense though? Definitely kind of trusting a sage of some kind to take you on this, on this journey rather than like, I mean, it's almost like, like literally like tour guides, right. Or like museum curators, like where you, yeah. you trust someone to go in and tell you what's important and what you should pay attention to. Um, and I don't know, like, I also just find it kind of attractive. Like, I'm like, I would, I would like a curated list of content, please. Like this is how often do I say I'm going to watch something and then just scroll Absolutely. for two hours and be like, okay, well, I guess I spent my time looking for something and now I'm going to bed. Um, Absolutely. There's too many choices by far. Um, this is a problem. This is what I was thinking through with like the Netflix thing. I watch a lot of TV. I don't have high standards, but it used to be that if it was on Netflix, I'd be like, well, this is a step above network tv and it's going to be pretty good but the um documentary I just talked about about the Cecil hotel and then another show called firefly lane which again was just like offensive to me so <laughs> wait, wait. michelle has thoughts on firefly lane so i've been avoiding anything about it because i was thinking about reading it because a whole bunch of people were like oh i love this book i love this book and i did not realize it but i just read a book by that author that I really liked, even though it was like sappy and really definitely, it was like pull on your heartstrings read, but I just really enjoyed it. Like I, I found it to be a very compelling, it's called The Great Alone. It's set in Alaska. I just, I, I, it was a, I read it very quickly. It was something I could kind of like get lost in. It, it served a purpose very well. There, there, those books, that kind of book serves a very important purpose. I agree. And so like when I saw that Firefly Lane came and everybody was so excited about it, I was like, well, maybe I should read that book. And then, but then the things I've been seeing about Firefly Lane, I'm like, this does not seem like a thing I would like. So I don't know. Um, I have heard that the books are pretty different from the TV show. Okay. Which the TV show just like, it's like a, um, it's like a surprise maze of how can we make this show about two strong female protagonists not pass the Bechdel test. 
surprise, neither of them were the main character. You shouldn't have cared about. Um, and I and I've I've just heard because it bothered me so much. I looked into it a lot. Um, that the books are very different. Okay. okay. But it was don't waste your time watching it. Um, duh, don't don't. And it was that and this Cecil Hotel made me go. Oh, Netflix isn't. I can't just go to Netflix and watch anything anymore. It's something I'm going to have to somehow curate. Which so this is cool. Because then you have to find somebody else to like the problem with the curation of these pop culture things is that the time you would have to put into it to make the judgment for yourself, you don't have, or you like, I mean, you, you can't, you literally can't watch it all. Right. You, you can't, decide and like I don't want to watch the first 30 minutes of five things either like I I want to just put something on and know that it's going to be okay enough right um and like part of me again like was feeling kind of like oh is that lazy but no I mean that's just necessary like if I'm gonna have time to watch a movie I want it to be a decent movie right I like that you're lazy is like I'm not gonna watch all the tv I'm so lazy (laughs) But I know what you mean. I know what you mean. So I love the idea of a curated, of like, I trust this person. I like this person's taste. I already am thinking of like 10 people. I'm like, I hope they do it. I would love to know what they're watching and I would watch it. And if they are legitimately doing it, because otherwise, you know, it's just going to turn into some sort of veneer that Netflix puts on its own algorithm be like, this is the you know, um, Donald Glover mix, but Donald Glover had nothing to do with it. But if like legitimately these people are curating this content, I think that's, that's interesting. Like that is a, I I am watching it curiously and hopefully to see what happens. Brandon Jacobs Jenkins. That's my first person that I would want to see their Amazon Prime or HBO Max list. I have no idea who that is, but Brandon Jacobs Jenkins is someone I'm currently obsessed with. Um, I listened to a podcast called The Scaredy Cats podcast, which isn't a it's not a great podcast. I don't recommend it too much, but they had him on as a guest, and he struck such a chord with me. Um, and I immediately, immediately went to Instagram because I like to follow people on Instagram and he doesn't have an Instagram page. It made me so sad because I wanted him. I just wanted to see everything he was consuming and do whatever he did because he was on this podcast and he basically, he's, he's a playwright and he's like won so many Obie awards or he's an Obie award-winning playwright, but all he wanted to talk about on this podcast were R.L. Stein Fear Street novels. And that's my kind of person, man. That's my sweet spot of a human being. Um, I mean, he's a MacArthur fellow. The MacArthur grant, for those who don't know, is also known as the Genius Grant. I'm obsessed with it. He is a MacArthur grant winner. And he was like, I want to talk about Fear Street. Let's talk about R.L. Stein. And just um, really like pop culture hound. And so I love him. I love him. I know it's off topic, but I just want to, I guess, also t- just give a shout out to Brandon Jacobs Jenkins because he's amazing. If you hear this, you should get with Amazon and see if they'll let you curate. Yes, do a deal with him. No, that's awesome. Yeah, I'm hopeful too. And thank you for giving me the push I need 
to watch, watch Atlanta. It's yes. been sitting there. You're you're curating. Look at you. You're curating my shows for me. Thank you. I want to you know, keep keep notes on if a show if one of the episodes makes you sob because I want to know okay. if it. I mean, it's a very low bar. I never used to cry. I wasn't a big crier. Um, I watched a video today of two grandchildren meeting their grandma at the airport and they dressed like dinosaurs to surprise their grandma, but then the grandma dressed like a dinosaur. Aww. No, it's cute. It's fun. Made me sob. Sobbed. That's where I met. So it's a very low bar to see which episode is going to make me sob. But thank you for- They all made me sob. Yeah. Thanks for pre-curating my shoes. That was our pop culture, which means it is time for research. Research time. You might have thought my snowmen was my research, as you mentioned. Um, I'm bringing it back. I'm bringing it back to early days when I um, was thinking about art and just want to let you guys in on a piece of art that's on my mind. Guess why this piece of art is on my mind, Michelle? Um, the piece of art I would like to talk about with you today is called Snowman. <laughs> um, and it's it's it was made in 26. Well, it's a kind of old work from the 90s, but it has many iterations. Okay, back. Okay, so this work of art is called Snowman, and it is by Peter Fishley and David Weiss. And they are it was originally it's a very cool work of art i love these artists and i didn't even know that i loved them there there are moments in my life i love art i love it so much i think it's magic and there are moments in my life where i'm like mm, i was probably always going to want to be involved in art somehow and i ended up an art historian we would be set loose in the museum a lot when we were little by my parents and just run around and have fun. Um, I tell this story a lot, I won't tell it here, but if anyone wants to know, I kicked a very important piece of art once when I was little and got like picked up and carried out of the Philadelphia Museum of Art. And um, then I just wanted to understand it. And there are these moments of seeing artworks at a very young age and just really be like, what's that? I want that. And it just struck something. And so I didn't realize I was looking into this snowman artwork. Brief aside, I'm going to talk about this artwork. But when I was little, I had to have been like 10 or 12. And I've always had like problems with insomnia. I was up late one night on the couch watching TV. Only it had to have been on PBS because that's all I was allowed to watch. I don't know why they were showing this work of art. Um, and it was basically like a very long Rube Goldberg machine. But instead of like a lot of pulleys and levers, everything was on fire. Just everything burned up. We move on to the next thing. And I remember laying there, there's like no music. It's just on fire and a tire rolls and something else is on fire. And I remember watching it and just being like, what is this? Why is this on TV? And it's 30 minutes long. And I remember laying there and watching the whole thing. And I've never forgotten it, but I thought it was a fever dream I had. And then like, okay, go had their Rube Goldberg machine music video. And everyone's like, what's this? And I'm like, it reminded me of it, but I'm like, I guess that never existed. I guess it was a fever dream. 
researching this and I come across it. It's a work of art by Fishley and Weiss called The Way Things Go. And it's real. And I was so happy to know that. And I got to watch a clip of it and it was very satisfying. Anyway, these artists who made that, which is a great Rube Goldberg video where everything's on fire, made this work called Snowman. It was built in the 90s. It was commissioned by a German power plant. And they wanted a work of art that used excess power or energy from the power plant. And so they made this refrigerated box that was hooked up to the power plant and it housed a snowman. And so it's a refrigerated box with a snowman in it and it's an artwork and I love art. Basically the way it works is it's a copper figure in the refrigerated box that you pump like a lot of humidity into and it forms the snow around it. And as long as you keep the box refrigerated and turned on, this snowman can exist in any condition. So originally it was for the power plant. And a lot of people read this work where it's a snowman in a box. It looks almost like an endangered animal or something as a commentary on climate change. And um, the artists say, well, no, it was commissioned. But of course you can talk about that, right? It, it adds to, um, it, it uses energy to exist, right? It's, it's, a, it's wasting energy, but it's, it's very much a commentary on that. They say the artists are very much whatever you want it to be, it is. But it's such a, it's such a cool work and it's been exhibited since then in a lot of different places. It's been in New York and um, most recently it was acquired by a museum called Quagoma which is the Queensland Art Gallery, Gallery of Modern Art. That's actually two museums and they're kind of connected. One of them is a, just a general museum. The other is a modern art museum. And the Quaigoma is definitely on my top 10 favorite museums of all time. It's a great museum. So I was very excited to read that they bought the snowman work. Um, Quaigoma has something called the Asian Pacific Triennial too, which is a really amazing triennial. I just want to mention that. So again, there's not a lot of research to my research. I just want to mention this artwork. It's called Snowman. And it most recently was shown in the dead middle of summer. And a fun aspect of the work is that because it's constantly making the snow in it that forms around the copper snowman, um, the face of the snowman, which is drawn on, eventually gets covered over. So every three days when it was on exhibition at Quaigoma, they would have a raffle to see who got to draw the face on the snowman. And so whoever won the raffle got to choose what kind of face he had for the next three days. So is the box like translucent? You can see the snowman through the box or you have to- Yeah. Open? Okay. Yeah, you can't open it because it would immediately like start melting, but it's a clear box that you can see it through. And it just is, it's very whimsical, but it, it represents a lot about why I love art. It's pretty stupid, but it also, when you see it in person, looks magical because it is very magical to have a snowman in the middle of summer. Is it a waste of resources? Well, 
yeah, but is it a, does it give you a special feeling? Like their art gave me when I was laying on the couch and I was 10 years old? Yeah. And that's what art does. And it speaks to climate change or other political bounds. So it's why I love art. And I want to tell you about Snowman and that museum. Also, Michelangelo was known to sculpt in the snow. So it's a very long and rich sculptural art historical tradition. There you go. That's that's it. All right. Um, so my research thing, I have no context for why it was my research thing. I just didn't have anything um, for this category. And so I went and I was like, I'm going to search for the history of some item. And I looked up the history of donuts. And here oh. I tell you about them. I love it. Here's a fun fact. <laughs> this kind of, I'm already pre-connecting. Um, every first snow, when I was a kid, the first time I would snow in the winter, my mom made donuts. Snow and snowmen and donuts are very interconnected. All connected for you. Um, so the origins of donuts are disputed, much like snowmen, that we can trace them back much, much further than our, like, this is a donut thing, right? Like fried dough has been around since at least ancient Roman Greece. So, but what we call a donut, what we typically think of as the donut, comes from the Dutch and I practice how to pronounce this, so I hope I'm saying it right. They call them alicoics, which just translates to oily cakes. And um, they would often make them with raisins and apples, but these did not have holes. And they came to America via Dutch immigrants in the early 1800s. One of these was 16-year-old Hansen Gregory, who was an American ship captain. Um, I don't know how you get to be a ship captain at 16. I've, I'm reading this from multiple sources. So part of me is like, maybe there's like crossed wires somewhere. Maybe he wasn't, I don't know. But anyway, Hansen Gregory, his mother, Elizabeth Gregory would send him aboard his ship, which maybe he was 16 then. Your mom's still making you your food for your ship that you're the captain of. Um, with <laughs> deep fried dough stuffed with nutmeg, cinnamon and nuts Walnuts and hazelnuts were put in the center because when you would when you would deep fry it, it wouldn't cook all the way through in the center. So they would try to put something hard there to like keep it from being all doughy and gross in the middle. Uh -huh. So Gregory is credited with creating the traditional donut with the hole in it. But the origin of how he came up with that idea is disputed. He told the Washington Post that he intentionally hollowed it out to prevent the center from being undercooked. Um, which is actually why they have holes in them. It, it makes it cook more evenly. And that's why we like that shape for donuts so that it is not gooey in the middle. Um, but some say that it was because as he was captaining his ship and you know the wheel of a ship has all the little spokes that he stuck the donut. Oh! That he could eat it hands-free and still captain. <gasps> I thought you meant like he was inspired by the round shape of the wheel. But no, he stuck the donut on the wheel to go, I'm out, I'm out. I'm going to can't take my hands <laughs> off or we'll crash, but I'm eating my donut. I mean, why can't it be both, right? Right? Others argue that he just didn't like nuts and he would pull the center out of his donut <laughs> to avoid eating the nuts and that that's why they had holes in them. <laughs> so whatever the case, uh... Hanson Gregory created a donut with a hole in it, and it became very popular and so associated with Americans that during World War I, French women who were volunteering would serve them to American soldiers to make them feel more at home. 
So it a very American thing, this fried dough with a hole in the middle. And in 1920, a man named Adolf Levitt made the first donut machine so that he could meet the demands of theater crowds in New York City. So as the people were coming out of the theater in New York City, they all wanted donuts and he couldn't fry them fast enough. So he made a, a machine that would fry them and make lots and lots of them. And being able to see these donuts being made, people became kind of obsessed with it and it became like this futuristic thing. So, so much so that in the 1934 World's Fair in Chicago, they were like, kind of showcased as this like futuristic, this very, um, you know, uh, industrial thing of being able to create all of this fried dough in, in a really- Like donut was the food that they did that way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which, so then in 1937, which is right after that World's Fair where, you know, the donut with the hole had its its big thing, um, in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, Krispy Kremes was started and it was designed- Krispy Kreme is from Winston-Salem? Yes. And it was designed to be a wholesale operation. So they were just trying to make donuts to like sell in bakeries or sell in grocery stores. But the smell of the donuts was so enticing that people kept showing up at the <laughs> place and be like, give us your donuts. We need these donuts. And because so immediately when you said people watch them get made, I thought of Krispy Kreme. Exactly. Watch donuts get made. And the reason that it was so easy to watch them get made is because it wasn't supposed, they weren't supposed to be there, right? Like they were just literally like in a factory and they were like, give us your donuts from I the want these donuts. <laughs> and so to this day, like that's still like Krispy Kreme still has the sign to turn on to be yeah. like, how are being made now? And like, that's where the history comes from. But the recipe for the Krispy Kreme is still unknown and kept in a safe in Winston-Salem. Heist. Heist, Michelle. Dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. Oh, I'm crazy. I've been, there's been something going on. I've been craving donuts so much for the past week. I guess it's the snow. There is a, there's a Pavlovian snowman and you didn't get a donut. Yeah. My mom makes really good. My my daughter loves donuts and sometimes we'll order, but you had to order them so early in the morning or everybody runs out of them. And I'm just never thinking about like, hey, I should order a box of pastries. It, I don't know. Like I, I, I mean, we usually have our desserts in the evening. And so yeah. we're thinking about it in time to get them, but maybe I'll have This to. is a theme. This is when we talked about how I ordered myself a whole wedding cake taster. You're like, yeah. plan ahead. Got to start. No, you have enough on your list. You need a um, dessert curator. I don't know. Somebody needs to curate my desserts or all of my meals. I would. Take I, which which theory do you like most? I, I really like the image of somebody trying to bite their donut on the wheel of their ship as they turn it. So I'm going to go with that one. Yeah, it's a good. It's very Earl of Sandwich, right? Like. There's a, there's a, there's a practical reason, but it's also very lazy and stupid. Yes. Yes. I have to play cards and I can't get my fingers dirty. I have to steer this ship and I just want to eat a donut. So to recap, here we go. And again, we're going to remind everyone, I think this week's going to be pretty easy peasy. If you want to throw us a challenge, send us something for the grab bag to mix it up. But we have a difficult one. Weird things. Um, snowmen. Are they weird? 
if snowmen aren't weird enough, the miracle of 1511, where people rebelled against freezing to death, being sick, corrupt governments by making a lot of pornographic snowmen. And we have my weird relationship to targeted advertising and being really happy with everything I've bought from them, even though I feel kind of icky about doing it. And then for pop culture, we talked about the popularity and rise of true crime and kind of murder culture, but definitely hit on um, a big thumbs down. Do not recommend the crime scene, the vanishing at the Cecil Hotel at on Netflix. And I talked about Donald Glover getting an Amazon deal that includes a curated channel where he will apparently tell us what to watch. Let us know. And then finally, research was the artwork Snowman by Fishley and Weiss. And I gave you the history of the donut. Okay. So... I thought this was so easy and then I blanked out. Um, basically, I think there's definitely a connection between you said when, when, why do people want to consume pop culture that has to do with crime? There's a release. There is a um, form of things are bad. I am scared of the world, but I can control it in this way or at least think through it. And then, of course, the um, the miracle of fifteen eleven was that sort of carnival esque. It was about control, but it didn't. It got away from them then. Got out of control, and they destroyed the snowmen that were there for um, for the right reason, well, not the right reasons, but for the the kind of state sanctioned reasons. And they made their own sexy snowmen. So maybe there's something about. Um, that but then we also talked about curating but that feels also like there's too much there's too much I want control you want someone to give you a do you know what I'm trying to say that there's too much so you want a curation is this maybe this might be too much to, to but I think it's something like control requires limits and I think I can connect this to almost everything except the donut. And then I was like, but you have to cut the middle out of the donut in order to be able to control the way the cooking, right? And, and also I feel like letting off steam has to do with the cooking process of the donut too. But I know you have to control the cooking. You want that whole donut. Donuts are great. Give me more donut. The more donut I can eat, the happier. Donut? I don't want you to take out any of the donut. But no, if you want a good donut, we have to take some away from you. Yes. If you want the best quality of things, you need something taken away from you. Yeah, there's control. And in my my like targeted Facebook advertisements, like I was not gonna go research the perfect sports bra or the perfect crash pad for my kids. Like it was too time consuming. There were too many options. I just would have not had them. But when it was this, like, we've got it for you. We found it for you. It's right here in your face. All you have to do is push this button and we'll deliver it to your house. I was like, well, fine then. Um, There's so much information in the world. You are producing and consuming so much information that even though it's creepy, you were thankful for the control of the algorithm at you on you. 
So yeah. what was it you said? You 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 had that line that was so good. In order to have that control requires limits, right? To be able to to be able to have control in a world full of excess, you have to have limits that might be imposed on you by somebody else. That's probably too long for a fortune cookie, but I think it's something like that. Too long for but the sentiment is there, which I the sentiment's there and I'm shocked. I would not think this is something I would want, but yeah, in a world of so many choices and excess limits can bring order kind of thing. Yeah. Limits. Limits aren't just limiting. Limits aren't always limiting. That's a fortune cookie. Yeah. I got that as a fortune cookie. I'd be like, Hey cookie. You got, you you, speak in my language here, cookie. I'm going to pause and think about you cookie. Limits aren't always limiting. There we go. They freed you up, right? You're freed up. You have things you enjoy. You can bounce and bounce. Um, and so can your kids. Um, you know, I got to go out in the snow and get some release. The donut can be fully cooked. Limits are not always limiting. There you go. There you go. Makes I'm going to go eat a donut, man. <laughs> going to get some Dunkin' Donut donut holes. Finish your grab bags. Do grab bags. Yeah. Thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye.